Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Seven big questions. We're still in that series. Seven big questions that people may be asking. Part three, is Christianity too narrow? It's a good question. It's one that's being bantered around quite a bit these days. And I'm going to give you three specific points as to why I'm going to answer that by saying, no, I don't believe it is narrow at all. And it's a bit on the apologetics level. And yet there's going to be some really key scriptures today as well. Now, for those of you who don't know what's happening here, you've either been in a coma for a month or you have been in the media-free zone because this took place January 20th, almost a month ago. It was the no-call, Rams versus the uh, Saints. See how much I'm really into sports? The Rams versus the Saints. It happened uh, at a time when it could have been crucial blatant. I mean, even I am not a real football aficionado, but even I saw that. You don't just cream the player before he's had a chance to reach up for the ball and not call that pass interference, right? That was the big controversy. And then the controversy escalated all through media because people are saying there were other officials on the field who saw that and they were even waving him off saying, no, don't call it, don't call it. So they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, there's collusion here. There's something wrong about that. Why do we make such a big deal over something like that? Because all of us demand justice. Because there's something deep down in all of us that say, if we're going to play by the rules, and if the rules are broken, somebody should pay for that. Somebody should be penalized for that. Okay? That's, and I understand that. I mean, I, I had a kid that played soccer for years. And our, our sweet, demure little girl, Callie, when she was in high school, would be out the sidelines and Tim Buck is an official. You know what it's like. You get a lot of people on the sidelines telling you how you should officiate the game. But one time, she cracked me up because it really was, I think, a pretty poorly, a poor call. But Callie, this sweet little demure girl, she's on the sidelines. She goes, hey, ref, are you watching the same game I'm watching? <laughs> I don't think you are. And then he turned around and she goes, so she didn't get any yellow card that day. He, he did. He started refing better after that. But that's, why do we get in the pictures about that? Because we demand justice, right? We all do. So that's where some of this starts to grow from as we look at, is Christianity too narrow? We start with the concept that Christianity is all about justice, something that I think all of us should resonate with and we should desire. We ought to desire justice. So here are the three points we're going to look at today. We demand justice. That's why, unfortunately, but it is true, hell is actually necessary. We're going to unpack that. Number two, hell itself is actually merciful because heaven wouldn't be heavenly if hell didn't exist. And thirdly, in Jesus... Justice and love are perfectly joined. We just sang about that. God is just because he is love. So we're going to look at those in a little bit more detail. First of all, we demand justice. That's why hell is necessary. 
God created hell for Satan and the angels who rebelled against him. This is the start of this great huge arch of story that is the Bible and it is Christian history. If you separate one of these little points away from the entire scope of history, you miss it altogether. That's why it's important for us to continue to look at from beginning all the way from creation all the way to recreation where everything's going to be made right again because that's the context in which we can understand why hell is necessary and it's actually merciful. If we didn't have a God who created things perfectly in the beginning, not much of this would make sense. So we start with this. Yes, God created hell as a place to keep apart those beings, in this case the angels, who had actually rebelled against him. Lucifer, that good-looking angel who wanted to be like God and usurp his authority, he was kicked out. He became Satan. There are also people in hell for the same reason, though, and that's rebellion. Rebellion against a righteous God, a holy God. We see that in Romans 6.23. Because God is morally perfect, and he is, he is, he always does the right thing. That's called righteous. He's the only truly righteous being ever, and he is. That is his character. So we start with that as our premise, and then all the rest of this starts to fall into place, and it makes more sense. Anything other than God's character as the standard for morality, the plumb line by which we measure morality, everything else falls short and becomes selfishly motivated and is therefore sin. Okay, so all this is just premise building up to why we need justice, and that's why hell is available. Uh, I have talked several times, including even just last week, about Eric Little, the Scottish runner, and the, the key character in Chariots of Fire, because he wouldn't run on a Sunday, and it created that controversy. Well, this is sort of a spin-off show from Eric Little, because when I started looking into his life and times and biography, I also ran across a guy named Langdon Gilkey, intelligent guy. He was a Protestant minister, a bit of a philosopher and theologian. He uh, extremely smart. He had degrees not only from Columbia University here in the States in New York, but then he traveled abroad, went to Cambridge, don't you know? And uh, because he had such a heart, a passion for social justice, he wound up going to China in 1940 to teach English. And while he was there, he said he came in contact with something that caused him to rethink one of the liberal thoughts that he had developed. Because in his time studying theology, he had come to the point when he thought, I believe that there's no such thing as original sin. He said, I believe that people are basically good at the core. It's like the blank slate theory. We're born with a blank slate, and you can be trained to be good, or you can be trained to be evil, but that we're all just neutral, so to speak. And he says, I, I really kind of think that when I went to China, I had the idea that rational thought would be enough to allow us to think through our difficulties and to fix the problems that we have sociologically and that we're not just evil at the core until the Japanese started to invade China and then he wound up in the very same concentration camp, the internment camp, as Eric Little. That's where these two guys converge. Now because Eric unfortunately died of a brain tumor five months before they were let free, just before the end of the war, uh, Eric... Uh, passed away quite young, actually, but this guy lived to be into his 80s, 85 years old. He died in 2004. And so he's had a lot of time to reflect on that and to write on it. So we get a lot of really neat insights from Langdon Gilkey, especially because we can see that he had a little bit of a shift in his theology as a result of his internment. And what he said was, 
because that was such a difficult place in which to live. Very little food, very few bathrooms for so many people, uh, a lot of boredom, time on your hands, people that were trying to make some sort of sense, an order within uh, the camp itself, even though there were so many people there. And he said, and that people would sort of default to their inner nature, which was usually very selfish and very sinful. People would steal from one another. They would push in line. They would try to usurp somebody else's place. They would push somebody out of the way. They would take somebody else's toy. He said, I saw this time and again, and at first I thought, well, this is everybody else. And then he said, you can only fake it for so long. I realized that's in me too. He recognized the sinner is in me. I am the one who contains all this kind of selfish, sin-motivated behavior because I find myself reverting to that as well. And basically, it's like that old cartoon. We have seen the enemy, and it is us. He said, I have seen where sinfulness comes from, and it's inside every one of us. I believe that we are born sinful, just like the Bible says we are. So he brought all the way back to original sin as something that he had to buy into because that's what the Bible teaches. He learned that. And these are some good basic premises that we find from Scripture that give us a foundation for why justice is actually loving. Gilkey learned that God is sinless, the only truly morally perfect being that ever was, and he always has been and always will be. All of mankind is sinful, started with Adam and Eve, and all of us are being punished for that, not because of Adam's sin, but because every other human being since Adam also exhibits that sinful nature. The Bible tells us that as well. We were born sinful. We all have that as a sinful tendency. It's our default mode once sin entered the world, unless it gets interrupted, and that's going to be the good news that comes later. That's the big however when it's coming. Judgment is just, and we have to be meted out by a just judge. We're going to look at that a little bit. All sin is against God, ultimately then, because since he's the only morally perfect person, anything that we do that's immoral is a sin against him. David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, had recognized that in one of his psalms and said, I've sinned not just against mankind, but Lord, I recognize I've sinned against you because he understood that God is moral and so all sin is immorality against God. And therefore, because God is both perfectly sinless and eternal, eternal punishment is the only just punishment. And so we have this delayed eternal punishment which turns out to be the most just thing that any just judge would give under the circumstances, and that's the logic that starts to build the premise upon which we're going to look today. Now, if God did not keep people outside of heaven for breaking his laws, what kind of a judge would he be? That would not be a just judge. This is also going to be a mirror image, by the way. It's lovely to see how the Bible does this so poetically. It's a mirror image of what happened when Adam and Eve sinned and they were kicked outside the garden. He was the place that was made by God so that he could give all of the love and attention and wonder upon the people simply because he wanted to share his love with other people and they had everything they needed. But because they rebelled against him, he needed to keep them away from that where sinlessness was. That's what hell is. It's a place for people to be kept out of the very place that God wants to be sinless. So anywhere sin is present can't be in heaven, which is why we need hell. See where we're going with that? Now, there's a book that, uh, Tom, I think you may have given it to all of us as elders, and I'm just now starting to read it. Uh, Steve Pipe is going to be teaching a lot from it in our adult growth encounters at 9.30. It's called Skeletons in God's Closet. Great book. Uh, It's very thought-provoking. 
Basically, this guy starts to unpack some of the distortions that we live with or that the world has foisted upon us and that we've started to kind of buy into. And once we understand what the distortion is and then we can get rid of the distortion and get to the truth, some of the concepts that we might have thought were not fair or that were difficult to swallow actually become swallowable. They become palatable because we think, oh, now this makes sense to me. God is not a tyrant who's looking to smack us up every time we turn around. He's actually a very loving and just God. Everything makes sense once we understand it from his actual character. So this is the distorted view in this book. And I've blown it up a little larger so you can see it. We have this concept that there's earth over here, and then we have heaven that's created up over here, and then we have hell that's created down over here all created by God as though he's some whimsical being that can just say, okay, uh, come up here, you, ah, let's send you over here. Let's send you over there. A lot of media, a lot of movies, a lot of books, literature, portray God this way as a whimsical, unjust judge who can, with the flick of his finger, just pop people over into hell or pop people up into heaven. Or we get the idea that if I balance things out enough, and if I've done enough good, then I can weigh the scales of justice, and I can say, oh, ooh, just made it in by the hair in my chinny-chin-chin, but I'm in heaven, Woohoo! Not at all what the Bible teaches at all. What we really have in the gospel view, and this is the truth that we find in Scripture if people actually look at the whole story, we have heaven where God was, and then he creates earth. Now, God didn't need anybody to be satisfied. God, the Trinity, had all he needed to be completely happy, if you will, to use that term. He was happy. He was satisfied. So why create beings? It wasn't because he was lonely, like some poetry would suggest. Oh, God was lonely, and so he created man. Not the case. God had everything he needed. So he creates human beings. Why? Because he's loving, he wants to share his love and happiness with other people. It's born out of love that he created earth and human beings to begin with. Human beings were the crowning achievement of his creation. That's the starting point. If you start with that as the starting point, then you understand God not as a tyrant, but as a love embodied in everything. He is love. Then it's not until sin enters the world that you see that red hell on the left side that starts to impact everything on earth. And because it affects every human being, we all have those tendencies, which means that everything is tainted by sin on this earth. However, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. That's exactly what's going to happen in the consummation when God fulfills his plan, because it's not going to be all of us going up to heaven like is portrayed. It's going to be God bringing heaven down to us. And when that happens, we can't have hell on earth as we're experiencing today. And so there has to be a place for sin and those who have rebelled against them that refuse to accept the free gift offered to them. That place is called hell. And it's a place that they are causing in themselves. They are the ones who choose to go there because everyone else has the same option that they can choose to accept God's gift of salvation and go into heaven. Now, here's the big however that I mentioned just a moment ago. Fortunately, here's the good news. All that has been kind of a little bit of a, a preface to this. But then we get to this big however, and we go, however. God who loves us enough saw that this terrible thing was happening across the earth because of sin that imbued everybody. But he wants them to have a way back to him because he still wants to share his love with them. So he creates a way, and that way is through the atonement. 
And the atonement is by the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. So God himself takes care of the need. He's the only one who can because he's the only one who's totally blemish-free, sin-free, upright, righteous, moral, whatever terms you want to use for it. He's the only one who, who captures that, and he's the only one who's eternal. So in Christ, that debt can be paid. And like that football game, we, we were so upset because they didn't have the penalty. They needed to be penalized. Well, there needed to be a penalty for sin. God can't just wink at it and ignore it and say, well, oh well, we're just going to let it slide this time. And so he does deal with the sin and he deals with it justly, but the penalty was put on the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's the good news. Now, what if Jesus had never died on the cross? This is worth asking if you're going to think apologetically to think, okay, let's think down logically down different roads to see where they might lead ultimately. Remember that good movie that we see a lot of times at Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life? I think it was a bit of a metaphor, if you will, for what could happen if the grace agents in the world were taken away and nobody existed. And that is this wonderful guy, this George Bailey fella, who tries to get into the service but can't because he lost his hearing in one ear when he fell through the ice, saving his, or his brother fell through the ice and he dove in to save him and his hearing goes bad. So then he's left to try to pick up the family business and work at the savings and loan. And at one point when things get really dire, he wishes out loud that he had never been born. Ding! And that's when things in heaven start taking place and Clarence, that goofy angel, comes down. He still hasn't earned his wing yet. And so he starts at wings, and he's starting to try to figure out how he can show George Bailey what life would have been like had he never been born before, hoping that George can see, my life does matter. And even the small things that I do every day can be agents of grace in other people's lives. I can make this world a better place. That's what that movie shows. So what would happen if God said, hey, I'm just going to sort of give a blanket forgiveness over everybody, and everybody goes to heaven. Universalism. It'd be Pottersville. Why? Because sin would still exist. And everybody would still be motivated by selfish reasons. And we wouldn't have the kind of Bedford Falls that we would hope for. Knowing that without sin, relationships will be perfect forever. Because God will be at the center of that. So we need to see some metaphors like that in literature and in history. To show that if we had Pottersville, it'd be the left side of that. Hell would still be present on earth. God has to eliminate all the evidences of and the motives of sin, and that's why we have to have a hell. I wouldn't recommend this to families because there's a lot of language, but there are also some really intriguing worldview um, concepts to examine in this movie, Glass. And what we see, this is a spoiler alert, so if you, don't, if you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want to hear this, just plug your ears. What we find out is that there is some agency that's sort of a, a secret agency. We don't know much about it until later in the movie. And we understand that we have these, uh, the good guys and the bad guys. That seems fairly apparent. But then there's this sinister agency back behind working at all this stuff. Essentially, what they're saying is we're trying to keep the world balanced. So their idea of what's keeping the world moving in the right direction is that we need to have balance. And so they would pit evil against good, but that's a good thing because it's keeping things balanced. So they don't have a sense of morality to say things are just wrong or just right. They're more concerned about just balance. And then 
you finally understand, oh, well, how do they do that? Well, if they start stepping outside of what your paradigm looks like, then we have to do something a little more effective and difficult, and so they start killing people. But that's not considered murder because they're just doing it for the greater good, and so therefore it's balance. And if you follow that tendency all the way down to where it looks, then you get decisions like have been made in New York right now. Where people can say, well, we're just maintaining the greater good for the greater number of people. It's okay if somebody wants to murder an infant, even into the third trimester, and not consider that evil. That's exactly what's happening if you don't have a plumb line for what's truly right and what's truly wrong. Which is why we have to start with the premise that God is perfectly good. He created everything perfectly to begin with. And then because of sin, we're going down this slippery slope. It's a very intriguing thing to show how art can mimic what life is really doing and if you see it going to this extreme it gets pretty scary second of the three main points hell itself is actually merciful now i wouldn't have thought of that had i not really thought this through logically but it's so true hell itself is merciful because heaven would not be heavenly if hell did not exist it would be pottersville as opposed to bedford falls just like i showed in that uh, little diagram a place where sin is not allowed. Let me read this to you and be thinking to yourself, wouldn't it be great to live in a place where sin is not going to taint anything? Well, that's what we have for us. And it's given to us through a vision that God gave John, exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and he wrote down what became for us the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So listen to this as I read it from Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This is poetic imagery. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. Do you see how heaven is coming down to earth rather than us going up to heaven? God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And listen to this part. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death. Ah, one of the big curses of sin. Wiped clean. It's finally done away with. No more death. That's a good place to be. Wouldn't you want to be in a place where there's no more death? I would like to be in a place like that. No more sorrow. No more crying or pain. All these things are gone, and not just temporarily. They're gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. The same phrase, In Greek, it's telestai, same phrase that Jesus uttered as he hung on the cross, finishing the work that had been done. Same phrase here. It is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. 
So the first death is physical, second death is spiritual and eternal. And then skipping ahead to verse 26 of Revelation 21. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter. Ah. Let me read that last phrase again. (laughs) Nothing evil will be allowed to enter. That's why hell is just. And that's why it's merciful. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that great? All of us who accept freely this free gift that God offers to us have this to look forward to. And I love what it says in that book, The Skeleton in God's Closet, about the metaphor of the fiery burning sulfur that never goes out, never is quenched. You look at James and he talks about the tongue that can set a forest on fire. He's saying essentially that we are the ones who continue to fan the flames because of the sin that continues to reside in us. As long as we have that, we're continuing to fan those flames. And we are the cause of it, and we're the ones who fail to recognize that we're the ones. It's like we've locked ourselves in our own coffin from the inside. Rather than freely accepting what God has freely offered to everybody. And we're going to look at that in a second too. So is it fair to say Jesus is the only way to heaven? Is that fair? I'd say yes, absolutely, because Jesus is God and God is good. God is gracious. We tend to forget that as well. If we have a distortion about our view of what God is like, then you might think, oh, that's awfully exclusive. But if God is the one saying that, and if God is the one who created everything perfectly to begin with, he's going to make it perfect in the end for everybody whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then of course it's fair for him to say that because he's the one who provides the way back to himself. So yes, that's very fair for him to say, I'm the only way. Gilkey saw these things too, Langdon Gilkey, when he was in that internment camp with Little. He said there was something that made him different in the camp. Most of us were acting selfishly, and it became just a pain to be there. He said, but this guy was ubiquitous. He was everywhere around the camp. He was organizing youth soccer matches, and he was training people over here. He wrote his own discipleship manual while he was there so that He didn't have any books that could be written in, so he, from his own memory, got as much information as he could and wrote his own uh, manual for discipling other people. He said, that guy made such a difference in the camp, and it was all about grace because he didn't care what came back to him. It wasn't about, I'm going to do this because rationally and pragmatically it makes sense because I will be better off if I do that. He was doing it simply because of grace. And Gilkey said it was grace that set him apart, and I realized it was grace that sets Jesus apart. That's what all the religions in the world don't have. They don't have God being gracious and sending himself in the form of Jesus, incarnate God, to show us what grace really looks like. That's what sets Christianity apart. Jesus is God the Son. I wanted to follow this logic through. I started noodling on this a little bit, and it kind of jumped out at me a little bit because I realized that some of the arguments sound ludicrous if you take them out of context and if you're not looking at God the way, he is, uh, the way he is spoken of in Scripture. So Jesus is God the Son, all right? Three persons, same God, the Trinity. So it's God speaking when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can be reconciled to God except through me, right? Everything Jesus spoke was from the Father, And so it's not like that there's this dichotomy going on here. It's not like they're two separate weird individuals. It's it's none of that stuff. It's the same God. 
So it would be silly for God the Son to be on earth telling people, I am the only way to heaven, and God the Father's up there and saying, but not really. Not really, because I can reveal myself to other people and my ways to heaven in a lot of other places. I, I invented Buddha, and I invented Muhammad. You know, I invented all these different paths, but they all lead to me, so don't worry about if If Jesus is your Savior, great, that's good for you, that works for you, but doesn't that sound ludicrous? How unfair would that be to Jesus? I would ask, if there were any other way that God could have accomplished justice without having to die on a cross, don't you think he would have done it? And wouldn't it be unfair to Jesus to be the only one who can accomplish that and do so and then have God wink at that and say, yeah, but you could follow these other paths too. That's not just. So going back to our first premise, that we demand justice, it is only just that God have only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ because God did it himself. And it starts to make sense. You see that all starts to make sense, and you think, God is so gracious. Especially when you see that he offers that to everybody. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, how many people who call on the Lord? Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's inclusive. So for somebody to say, oh, Christianity is so narrow, it's so exclusive, I would say, look at Romans 10, 13. He offers that to everyone. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. See the offer? It's being offered to everybody, John 3, 16. So the skeptic might say, and I've read several of them, who have said, okay, I want a watertight argument. And I heard one pastor who said, a guy came up and asked him that after one of the services when he was doing some apologetics kind of preaching. And he said, go read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what you'll find there is not a watertight argument. You'll find a watertight person in Jesus Christ. He wins every time. You can't argue with him because his grace just baffles everybody he'll come back to his questioners and he leaves them scratching their heads because he's a watertight person the bible shows us jesus christ he's what we need to show people the difference in christianity is the grace given by god not religion twisted by man that's another thing that gilkey saw when he was in that internment camp he said there were people who would justify their awful behavior And those who considered themselves secular, who had no religion, would justify it with rational terms. They would say, hey, it's survival. And if it's survival of the fittest, you could imagine that I would act this way, so I'm only doing what you would expect somebody to do in this situation. He said, however, and this is where it really got ugly, those who had different kinds of, and there were Buddhists and Hindus and lots of different people in that camp, there would be people who would try to justify their awful behavior by using their religious jargon, And he said, and that made it really bad because it turned religion into sin. That's exactly what Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People that would literally lock people out of heaven and say they were being religious all the time they're doing it. And those are the people to whom God will one day say, I never knew you. They'll say, but we did all these things in your name. And they'll say, no, I never knew you. He said, so for those of you who understand that religion, for those of you who know that religion can be awful, it can Why is that? Because there are sinful human beings that will try to co-opt religion and use it to their own sinful purposes. 
And that's not at all what God has in mind when he sends Jesus Christ, the perfect person, because he wants to transform us to be more like Christ so that one day we'll be able to be in that place where everybody whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life will be and sin is somewhere else because God is guarding all of us from that sin so we can enjoy his perfection forever. Number three, in Jesus Justice and love are perfectly joined. They're married. They came together on the cross. God is just because he is love. If he was not loving, he could very tyrannically say, all of you are sinners, be gone with you. I was happy with myself back up in heaven. But he doesn't do that. Because he longs to share his love with others because he is loving. That's what we parents long to do with our children. That's why parents have children. We want to share ourselves with others. I think that's even just sort of a a carrying forward what God modeled for us in the Trinity. And so it's natural for us to want to share love with other people. And we like to do that for another generation, if at all possible. God is just because he is love. So is Christianity too narrow? I would say based on these three apologetics concepts, not at all. No, it's not narrow. It's not narrow for a God who loved us enough to create us in the first place and who wants us to enjoy himself and his perfection forever to pay the penalty so that we can escape punishment that we deserve. That's not narrow at all. That's magnanimous on his part. That's loving. So God's antidote for sin, as we've seen, is open to everybody. And just in case you're worried that some people on the other side of the globe might not get that, look at the testimonies that are pouring out these days from God revealing himself even supernaturally to people who didn't have a chance to hear it from other people. Look, folks, we can trust God to be just. We can trust him to give everybody a fair shake. We can. He's trustworthy. It is God who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So it says in 1 Timothy 2.4. For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See how magnanimous he is? Whoever believes, and this is where the part of the opting out comes. This is what lets us know that everybody has a choice. He's not going to force himself on people that don't want him. It wouldn't be very kind for God to say, you have hated me your whole life. You have spat in my face. You've cursed me. You have said, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. It would be hell for him to say, and I force you to be in my presence for eternity. They've actually created their own hell by what they have done. So there's an opting out. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He made it clear from the beginning. He's revealed himself, not only general revelation through creation, as we talked about last week. He's revealed it through Scripture, which is inspired. It gives us the whole scope of this history and this story. And then through the Logos, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, the perfect representation of God among mankind. He made his dwelling among us so that we could see God clearly. And so there's nobody who's going to have an, an excuse. No, one, no man is without excuse. But everybody has the option to opt in and say, yes, I want him, or to opt out and say, I don't want anything to do with God. And in that case, 
Hell is merciful to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Christianity is not narrow. It's for everybody. But everybody has a choice. So my big question, of course, at the end of a sermon like this is, what have you chosen? I want to take as many with me. I really do. I just want as many of us as possible to get into heaven. Because I told you at the beginning, I said, I love you. As a pastor who loves you, I want to tell you the truth. Because I don't want anybody to have to be excluded from heaven. I want them with us in heaven forever. Not because we can do anything good on our own, but simply because of what Jesus Christ did in our place by being our substitute. And I just ache for more people to know that and to respond to it so that they can come with us and be in that wonderful place where hell is separate and where all of us are enjoying God forever in a sin-free environment. Let's pray together. My Father in heaven, I'm so grateful that I can speak personally to you this way, that I have access to you, that you hear me, you comprehend, you even answer back. I thank you that you want a personal relationship with every human being on the planet and that you continue to reveal yourself in so many ways. And because my heart aches for those who have not yet made that choice, I'm praying that you would help me to be an a grace agent in the world that all of us could do the things we can do with the way you've shaped us so that like Eric Little even though life gets difficult and we're surrounded by people who have sin that affect everything they do and that we recognize we have that too but as you're transforming us as believers in you I pray that we'll be grace agents that we'll start to have a wonderful positive effect on those around us a ripple effect so we can start to see glimmers of heaven on earth so that your kingdom will come and that eventually we'll see that brought to fruition forever when you consummate your grand plan. And I really desperately do want so many other people to join us there. I would hate for them to have to be in that place. Even though I know it's just, I would just hate for anybody to wind up separated from you because that truly would be hell. And so I'm praying now that you would do whatever you can to continue to draw people to yourself and that we, as your grace agents, will love people so completely and so graciously that people will be drawn to the Jesus in us and that they will one day know you and come to that knowledge of the saving faith in Jesus Christ which you offer to all of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.